Now, be honest, how many of you can say, that's totally me on a horse? Yeah, you guys, you guys are all that, uh, you're, you're that good, huh? All right. Well, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at South Shores Church. It's great to be with you this morning. And we are continuing in the book of James. So I'd love for you to uh, pull out your Bible, open up to James chapter 3, verse 1. If you didn't bring your Bible, there's Bibles in the pews in front of you. And uh, if you don't know where James is, there should be a little table of contents right in the front of that Bible. Well, we are continuing in our series in James. We called it Get Out There. Handbook for an Active Faith, because James as a book is incredibly practical, and he is very direct, and he wants to see real faith lived out. That's what we were looking at last week, that real faith is an active faith, is a saving faith, that faith does something. It's not enough for mere doctrinal knowledge or religious sentimentality or well-wishing, but faith that is true and saving works. But today, we're changing up gears a little bit, but it's very related. We're not talking about works, we're going to be talking about words, because a real faith, an act of faith, is one that speaks as well. Now, I'm the father of four little kids. Uh, The oldest is all the way up at age six (laughs) and going down to nine months. And communication and kids learning communication styles and words and stuff, it is incredible. It's been really fun. It's just been the the world we've been saturated in for the past six years, those beginning stages of speech. So right now with the nine-month-old, we have the the coos and the laughing and the babbling and the da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Not ma-ma-ma-ma-ma-ma-ma yet. (laughs) I'll have you know. And then we have our two-year-old, who I've referred to before as the one with the Boston accent, who uh, has, has a lot of words, and we can hold great speech, but mostly likes to just say yes and no. But uh, if you get her chattering, she won't stop. We have our four-and-a-half-year-old, and he has a particular quality I haven't seen in my older son, in that he is always singing. That's his primary form of communication at this point. And even when we ask him to not sing, he just sings in his head. He always has a song. And he'll even go up to us and say, Dad, guess what song I'm singing? (laughs) Uh, Can you give me a clue? Can you make a noise? Jingle bells? No, Jesus loves me. Oh, okay. Dad, guess what song I'm singing? Jesus loves me again? No, okay, I'm not going to get it right. And then we have our six-year-old, and he was a very early verbal kid. Uh, He was uh, just so many words from 18 months and on, and has always been able to say everything he's thinking. I mean, everything. (laughs) When he was real little and uh, didn't even know the word for or what throwing up was, he came over to us and said, Mom, I I made yucky soup in my mouth. What a great description. (laughs) I think I'm going to use that. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we should go help you. He's made up other words. uh, That that thing that you store food in because you want to use it later, he calls it a frigilator. Um, uh, A little wooden ruler, he calls it a measure wood. Uh, So he's, you know, he's come up with stuff. If he doesn't know the word, he'll, he'll describe it. But kids really do say the funniest things, and they can be brutally honest. This same son, Hutch, who is sick, said to me this weekend, he said, Dad, You know, sometimes when I talk to old people, they just go on and on and on, 
until they get distracted. <laughs> and dad, I just, I sit there and I just think, I wonder when they're going to be done. <laughs> a woman came up to me after the last service. She said, I think he's talking about me. I had a conversation with your son this week. I said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> she wasn't offended. But wrapped into all this development that they're going through, increasing in their vocabulary and their methodology of speech, there's also something else that seems to pop in at every level, and that is sin, those pervasive effects of sin. And so this question comes up, well, how important are our words? Are our words just kind of words, and they're just kind of separated from us, Right? And should we really expect the words of a follower of Jesus to, to be any different from someone else? And that's implied in, in the question that James brings up here in verse 1. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. James right away is showing us that words aren't just words. There's something we can be judged by. He's not talking about just about people, though that's true, but actually judged by God. And he says it's first for the teacher because there is an added responsibility to stand here and declare words about who God is and what he expects from us in the Bible. There's extra responsibility. But the truth is that we must all pay attention to our words because words and speech is ripe for sin to work its way into. And so our question this morning, the question that I hope to answer is, how important are our words? And the answer that I hope you will see clearly in James is that an active faith speaks life from a transformed heart. An active faith speaks life from a transformed heart. And to get to that place, to go from the question to the answer, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly of our words. So let us continue where we left off in verse 2. James says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And I think sometimes we're so used to, in the confines of the church, to only hear about the, the negative, the bad things that our words can do, that we fail to know or remember, or maybe we've never really considered it, that our words have great power for good as well. The point of verse 2 here is that while we may all sin, a controlled tongue can actually be an ally in your pursuit of holiness. Your tongue can help you to become more mature in your faith in Christ. It can help you to become more like Jesus. Well, how can the tongue help you? Well, James says, let's look at horses. That's where I always go. Let's look at horses. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, I know James here is working from sort of the general principle of the thing. He's not actually looking at my life and my horsemanship. Is that a word? My horse riding abilities to, in order to discern this point, because I'm pretty sure any horse I've ever been on, I was not in control. 
I've only done the trail riding kind of horses. Trail riding horses are great because they already know where they're going. They're like, this is the loop I got to do to get back to my oat bag, and then I'll do it. I do have this heavy thing on my back. I don't know why he keeps kicking me and yelling, yeah, like he's a cowboy. <laughs> but have you ever seen real riders like we had up on the screen, the kinds that take him this way and that way, and they can change the speed and the the way the horse is using its feet. They can go over the bars. They can go through the barrels. They can take them in through water. They can make the horses do things that they don't actually want to do but are capable of. They're sitting on over 1,200 pounds of this muscular, powerful, potentially unruly beast. And because it has this little thing in their mouth that's connected to these reins, they can guide it where they want to go. It's not just about control, but about directing these powerful internal forces. And James says, so too the tongue. But then he talks about ships. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Well, if my horse riding resume is not very, uh, well, impressive, my Sailing one is non-existent, so I have no personal experience to share with you on that. But James is talking about a real boat with a real sails and a real crew. And they're out there, and there's these driving winds, and some are helping them and driving the boat, and some are going against them. But with the big boat and the big sails and the big winds at work, it is this very small rudder that makes sure that it gets where it needs to go. And it's controlled by the will of the pilot. So the pilot is controlling the boat by moving this thing. What's that called? Steering wheel. <laughs> if it was a car, yes, I'm going to call it a steering wheel too. So the, he moves the steering wheel that moves the rudder and the boat goes the right way. It's the picture of the power of the tongue directing the body according to your desires and your will, even against these outside forces of the world. And James makes this connection really clear. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now, when I first read this, I thought, boast, that's a negative. We don't want to boast. We're Christians. But the bit and the rudder are small things that can boast of what? Having control over great things. And it's not bad, it's true. They really do. And so James is saying, so also the tongue. It can boast of great things because it does have control to direct the body. In fact, your whole life. To paraphrase his initial thought in verse 2, if you're able to keep from sinning in your speech, then that's going to help you to keep from sinning in your actions. Not because it just makes you stronger at resisting in sin in one thing, and so I can kind of carry on that strength over to something else, but no, because it actually has the power to direct it. Imagine a light board with all sorts of different switches that control different banks of lights, and you can try and find the individual ones, but let's say all the lights are on and you need to get them off, what do you do? You don't go to all the individual switches, you flip down the master switch. You turn them all off at once. So what does this mean? It means that as you are trying to find a way to fight the forces within you and outside you that drive you to sin and to fail over and over and over again, have you ever thought, maybe God's given me 
something else to help me in this fight as well. He's given me a chance to hit the master control of my mouth, control the tongue, and you can direct the body away from sin and holiness. Now, James is using this term, the tongue, but he doesn't just mean our outward verbal speech. It certainly is that, but it's also the words you think. It's the words you write down. It includes your plans, your imaginings, that little voice of self-pity or that works up in a fervor your, your anger about something that's happened. How many arguments in your home could be solved by charitably just holding your tongue until the sinful feelings have passed? Or when someone is wrong to you, how much internal grief and sin could be avoided if instead of spending hours kind of rehearsing and rewriting and reciting what you should have said or what you're going to say the next time you sing them in order to give them that zinger, what if you took the reins and guided yourself towards where Jesus actually wanted you to go? How many Christian dating couples could help stop themselves from falling into their lust if they took those initial thoughts captive instead of fueling them with further talk of, oh, I hate for you to leave now. Wouldn't it be great when we're married that we can just stay together the whole night? Further fueling the fire of those passions and writing checks they can't cash. Wouldn't if they use their mouth to speak of Christ and of his glory? Scholar A.J. Matya writes, the control of the tongue is more than an evidence of spiritual maturity. It is the means of it. It keeps the horse on the right path. It guides the ship through the storm and into safe harbor. James wants us to take control of our tongue so we can direct our lives toward God. And that's the good. Controlled words direct But there's also some bad here, and that's that uncontrolled words devastate. Continue at verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. We're not talking about boats and ponies anymore. We're talking about a little flame playing with matches in the dry brush in the middle of summer. James calls the tongue a fire. Now, I grew up as the son of a firefighter, and it was pretty cool to have a dad who was a fireman, and it allowed you the, the benefit to just have some pretty unique opportunities, like this picture we have right here. That's me and my older brother Ryan smiling right in front of somebody's tragedy. I'm just kidding. It's a controlled burn uh, that the firefighters put on, and there was nobody in there. But we got, to, we got to go to stuff like that because of my dad. We got to experience the, the peanut oil smoke and the, so that you knew how to crawl through and, and get away. We learned about what it takes for a fire to happen, the, the fire triangle of heat and oxygen and fuel, and how if you take away one of those sides, you can put out the fire. We learned not to play with matches, and we met Smokey the Bear on occasion. But growing up, I also learned on my own about the power of words. 
and not the good kind of power, like with the bit or the rudder, ones that could direct my actions. Instead, I learned that I didn't have to be strong physically in order to make others feel weak. I could do it with words. I thought it was a pretty handy tool for a pesky little brother to have. Smart Alec would be the nice way of describing what I was growing up. There are other words. I thought I was an angel. Uh, Little did I know, my brother, when we shared a year in high school, he was a senior and I was a freshman, he was convinced that I was going to get a beating once a week, every week, just because of my words. Maybe he had read Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lip brings him strife and his mouth invites a beating. (laughs) I didn't know my brother even read the Bible that well. That was great. In the same time that I was learning the dangers of fire, I was walking right into the fires of the tongue. And James in his picture is saying that the person who cannot control their tongue still has great power, but it's for harm. It devastates themselves. It devastates those around them. And he describes the tongue's character as a world of unrighteousness. That's saying it's a, it's a conduit, it's a direct access tunnel for the enemy to speak into your life. He says it's corruptive influences are staining of the whole body. He says its scope is for your whole lifetime. You don't get to outgrow it just by age. And its affiliation is the very forces of hell. Well, it doesn't take much to recognize that an uncontrolled tongue is really, really bad news. And James, he doesn't want us to get burned. But here's the deal. We already know that words hurt because we've all been burned by them already. Am I right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We grew up with that statement, and experience proved that it was a bold-faced lie. There's no, no truth to it. Some of you in this room right now can very easily think of some harming, hurtful words that have burned you and maybe even feel like at times have defined you. And they're from years ago, possibly even decades. But as soon as you touch that spot, it feels like from yesterday because it hasn't really healed. So why do we still do it? This week, I'm in the midst of studying the scriptures. I'm in this sermon time. In the morning, I'm trying to get my sons ready to go to my uh, oldest basketball game, and they're not getting ready, and they're, they're disobeying by not listening to what I say, and so I go from using words that call them to obedience to fire that makes them feel just guilty for having inconvenienced their dad, and it's a little burn. And I, and I think on this, and I think about this imagery of this forest fire, and it's like, how many little burns is it going to take before my kids are like so many adults who say, yeah, yeah, my dad loved Jesus, but he was harsh with us. I don't want that to be my legacy to them. Some of you this morning gave uh, some attitude or choice words to a spouse or to a child, and then you just left that fire to just kind of sit there and spread. You see, we, we know what it looks like. We don't even need James to tell us we have felt it and we have done it. 
There's good in words when then controlled they direct, but the bad is uncontrolled words devastate. But we also got to face the ugly. And James says we can't control our words. Verse 7 through 9. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. There's a viral video from a few years back that's uh, called A Lion Called Christian. You can check it out later on. But in this story, it, it tells you about these two men who are living in London, and they found a lion baby, a lion cub, at a department store called Harrods. I, I've never been to an apartment, department store in London. Apparently, there's lions. Just a warning if you're traveling overseas. Well, this is back in 1969, and they, uh, took the, they purchased the lion, and they brought it home and began to feed it and raise it, and there was a, a local uh, pastor who let them use his grounds and cemetery in order to let the lion run, and magically, the lion got bigger and bigger. And it grew up, and it loved them, and they had fun with it, but then it was too big, and so they actually were able to send it to Africa. Well, a year later, and this is where the video kicks in, they wanted to see how he was doing. And so it's going to be a reunion of sort, because they eventually found where he was, and as you're getting close to the moment, you're like, what's going to happen? This is a lion. Is it going to remember them? Is it going to greet them? Is it going to eat them? And so you wait for, with anticipation, and, and they see him from a distance, and they're smiling and kind of calling out to him, and he starts running to him, and he gets up on them, and they hug, and it's a wonderful moment, and they're rubbing his mane, and it's like, what is going on? And uh, the video I was watching had Whitney Houston's I'll Always Love You going on in the background. So like, you know, this is a real magical moment. You're like, I'm kind of invading in their space, but they put it on YouTube, so I guess it's okay. But it's this, what a... A lion, the, the king of the beasts. And they're just hugging him and rubbing his mane like he's a little dog that usually fits in a purse. Like, how is this possible? It's cute, but it's a little disappointing. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible thinks that we can make any animals our friends. I mean, if you go down to the San Diego Zoo and listen to them talk at the polar bear exhibit, they let you know, hey, there are certain animals that you never go in unless they've been darted and are unconscious. They're dangerous. But we can subdue them. We do have the darts. We do have the walls and the cages. We even put some animals to work. But not so the tongue. James is insistent. No human being. We can't do this in our own power. It's not in our power. It is a restless evil. And it's full of deadly poison. Restless evil, I think of that, that story of the woman who uh, had, had a chimpanzee, again, wild animal, as her pet for years. And then one day it just attacked her and almost tore her face off. And that's the idea of this restless evil. That you think you've got your tongue tamed. You think it's doing what you want. It's taking orders from you and suddenly it turns savage. And it's ready to attack and to burn and to bite those around you. 
You might be thinking, Derek, what are you talking about? Well, just think about all the times that a word slipped out and you tried to get it before it got to their ears and you immediately regretted saying it. Or the other times where you've intentionally thought through, okay, this is how I'm going to approach it and this is what I'm going to say and you say it and it has the consequences that you never saw coming. And you wish you could take those words back. James' proof and example of this poison is found then in verse 9. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Okay, we, we come to church on Sunday and we respond to the goodness of who God is with songs and praise and thanksgiving, but somehow we still fail to see that in our words, in our little bit of sarcastic criticism or subtle tearing down in that sort of self-important speech we use to make others feel lower or the comparisons or the hasty words or the oversharing of other people's stuff that we are dishonoring God's name because all of these people are made in his image and God takes it personally. And so this is the ugly situation that we're in. I need to control my tongue, but I can't control my tongue. Well, what can I do? Uh, that's when we need to remember it's not actually about what we do. And Matthew 19, verse 26, is a good one to remind us in these sorts of things. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So I said we'd look at the good, the bad, and the ugly, but I also want to show you the beautiful, which is that God changes the heart. Verses 10 through 12. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James has three purposes in this section. First, to show the absurdity of a mixed-up mouth. James says this ought not be. You can't do this. Fresh water springs don't switch off between giving fresh water and salt or bitter water. If there's any bitterness, any salt, the whole thing is ruined. Well, how about a fig tree that bears olives or a grapevine that produces figs? It can't happen. It's crazy. Cursing others, that is the condemning them through dishonoring them, it shouldn't be in our thoughts about other people. It shouldn't be in how we talk about other people. And it shouldn't be in the manner of how we talk to other people. Not, it does not fit with a mouth that seeks to honor God. Instead, our speech, we are called to be consistently pure and honoring. It is absurd to have a mixed, have mixed language from the same mouth. The second purpose is to show that our words reveal our hearts. To paraphrase scholar J.A. Meyer, he says, fresh water comes from a fresh source, salt water from a salty source, figs from a fig tree, grapes from a vine, and what's more, bitter words from a bitter heart. Critical words from a critical spirit and unloving speech from a heart where the love of Jesus is a stranger. Or as Jesus said, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. 
The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. I've heard it described as, as a sponge. When you go to wring a sponge, what comes out? Whatever was in it, right? Whatever was in it, your words reveal what's in your heart. So that means a, a word problem, a speech problem, is actually a heart problem. And that's the scary truth that we need to come to grip with. Because we don't like having heart problems, physical or spiritual. But I don't believe that James actually brings this up to lead his readers, nor to lead us into despair, but rather to bring us into his third purpose, to show that change begins in the heart. James, once again, uses the term, my brothers. And he does this to show affection, but also to remind us that he is talking to followers of Jesus. James gives his correction on the assumption of a transformed life through faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe that his final line in this section, neither can a salt pond or a salt spring yield fresh water, is actually intended to draw out a reassuring conclusion. Here's the logic that I see. Does your tongue have poison still? Yes. Should you bless and curse? No. Is it ridiculous and wrong that both of those come from the same heart? Yes. Does it reveal something about that heart? Yes. But is the heart that praises God, truly praises, is it a salt pond, dead with no life to give? No. For James reminds us, there could be no fresh water at all unless its source has been changed. So what does that mean? For those who are truly in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, the source of our water has been changed. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says this, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say and truly mean Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. God is the one who changes the heart in the first place. And he's not done working on you. Good trees bear good fruit. It's true, but not immediately and not all at once. Spiritual growth and maturity is willful and it is made with daily decisions, things that take time, and God is patient to work in you and with you. Proverbs 10, 11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Only a transformed heart, one with God as its treasure and its source of righteousness, can produce life-giving speech. And only God can get us there. An active faith speaks life from a transformed heart. So what shall we do with it? What are we to do? I want to give you four things to make this practical for us today. First, to reflect on your words. The scriptures call us to examine ourselves, and this applies to our words, how you use them both intentionally and unintentionally, and who you have hurt. How have you been talking about and to your spouse or with your kids or your parents or coworkers or friends or neighbors or waiters? Uh-oh. And strangers. How have you used words for selfish gain or have you threatened or manipulated or accused or slandered others with words? Now this might actually, it's a little scary, but it might actually take you talking to your spouse or friends or the people who know you close and saying, hey, can you be honest with me? 
How do I use my words? You need to reflect. Secondly, you need to repent of your sins. This is core to the Christian life. This would involve apologizing to those you've hurt, yes, but also uh, in grief, confessing it to God and trusting that he is faithful to forgive us from our unrighteousness. We need to repent. Third, we need to renew, you need to renew your heart. The other day, my, my son Oaks was just crying unconsolably about something, and I'm not even sure what it was. But as I went and talked to him, I found out that he was crying even harder because he had heard that if, when he was sad, if he just bit his lip and blinked his eyes, he could keep from crying. And it wasn't working. And I had to tell him, it's not going to work. Your, your, your sadness is deeper than that. It's deeper than that. Well, in the same way, some of you have tried to bite your tongue to keep from sinning, but you fail to recognize that the poison goes deeper. It begins with the heart, and the only answer is changing who you treasure and who is the source of your life, because God is the only one who can do it. He makes fountains of life. So if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. This isn't about you trying to swear less. This is about beginning with believing the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us through his death and through his resurrection and then submitting to him as the rightful king. And if you are a Christian, step three, this uh, renew is to pray for the Holy Spirit to work in your heart to increase your love for Jesus, to increase your longing for holiness and to increase your control of your tongue. He's the one who can do it. He can renew you. But fourth, we resolve. We resolve to resist sin and speak life. The greatest work is what God is doing in your heart, but we are called to work with him too. So we resolve to resist sinful speech and to instead bless others with life-giving speech. As Paul put in Ephesians, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We need to take practical steps to outwardly change what we then trust God is inwardly changing in us. And so we resist sin and we fill ourselves instead with God's word. You know, the, the words and the language abilities of my kids are always changing in their vocabulary and their methods. And my hope for my children is that they will avoid the fire of the tongue and instead uh, find this directing power that's in the tongue. But my hope is not in my ability to train them, but it's in the Holy Spirit to transform their hearts, to make their mouths fountains of lives so that their words will guide them into holiness because words are important and an active faith speaks life from a transformed heart. Please pray with me. Father God, we need you. Oh Lord, how we need you. We need you to work in our hearts to change us, even as your word challenges us. May you help us to be Christians who show our love to the world in our actions and in our speech. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.